For he says, In the time of my favour I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you now, now is the time of God's favour, now is the day of salvation. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path, so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. <coughs> in great endurance, in troubles, hardships and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonour, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, in dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can, have light, can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. Evening, everyone. I add my welcome to uh, out of James. Lovely to see you all here. Especially also, as James said, if you're new or visiting tonight, uh, we're delighted you've decided to join us. My voice is louder than Seth, so you might need to trim the gain a little bit so I don't feed back on you. Uh, thanks. Tech people, uh, make the church go around. Uh, please do keep your Bibles open at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm going to be a bit greedy and dip into four verses of chapter 7 while I'm at it, because... I can. Uh, let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you're the God who speaks and you speak to us uh, in your word and by the power of your spirit at work within and amongst us uh, to shape us more into the likeness of your son, our saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that you do exactly that now as we consider this part of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. As we've been going through 2 Corinthians here at church, in growth groups, uh, perhaps for some of, some of you in your, your own personal Bible reading, you might have noticed that the turns of phrase that Paul uses uh, in this letter make for a number of quotable quotes. Uh, if you were here last week, uh, Jono, uh, to his great delight, got one of his favourites. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. Earlier on in chapter 1, a number of people will have uh, this as vaguely familiar, if not more familiar. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Later on in chapter 12, we get one that's often a favourite for many people. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. But one of the big quotes from 2 Corinthians that has often stood out to me, perhaps because I seem to have heard it, I think maybe more than the others, is uh, 
Well, this one here, halfway through chapter 6, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Some older translations have, uh, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. It's a bit of a standout command from today's passage. And it's also one that, as far as I can tell, is often misunderstood. A yoke, of course, is uh, a thing you use to keep oxen together so they keep ploughing the field in the same direction. One doesn't run away from the other one sort of thing. And so some people think that this metaphor of two things locked together will make sense of wedlock, make sense of marriage. So don't get married to an unbeliever is what it means not to be yoked together. Now, the Bible certainly does teach that it's a sin for a Christian to marry a non-Christian. That's true. But I'm not convinced that that's what Paul is talking about here in chapter 6. Some people rightly point out that the oxen who are yoked are yoked in order to work together. So maybe the teaching is that Christians aren't to work alongside or with non-Christians. But if that were the case, it would be very strange because Jesus himself envisaged Christians and non-Christians working together together. And alongside each other. He says on the, the great day that the Son of Man is revealed, that there will be two women grinding grain together. One will be taken, the other left. That's Luke 17. Another way you can sort of think about it is, well, and a way that church history has often thought about it, is that to be yoked together with an unbeliever is, is to have anything to do with them. So to not be yoked is to have nothing to do with anyone who is not in the kingdom of God. Uh, and that includes have nothing to do with secular government. And throughout church history, we've seen examples of this with cloisters, with monasteries, with closed Christian communities uh, and cults. All those sorts of things have arisen at various times and places. We kind of remove ourselves from the world and only kind of have anything to do with the people of God. But that can't be what it means either. Something the Apostle Paul himself said to this Corinthian church in an earlier correspondence shows that that can't be what he's going on about. Uh, let me quote you from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. I'm not talking about that, says Paul. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral, greedy, an idolater, slander, drunken or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. So, yes, there are people we must not associate with, but clearly that can't mean removing ourselves sort of entirely from the world. So what does it mean to not be yoked together with an unbeliever? And how do we apply and obey that, at least in my experience, oft-quoted part of uh, the Bible from this letter? Well, you guys know me, you know by now, of course, the first thing I'm going to do is going to look at the whole thing, right? We're going to start by looking at the whole section from verse 1 to get this in its context. At the beginning, Paul writes, As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says... In the time of my favour, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. And I tell you, now is the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. So the broad context is about 
not receiving God's grace in vain. The time of God's favour and his forgiveness is now. So you want to make sure that if you've received God's grace, that is if you acknowledge Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, which I desperately hope you will do, that you therefore don't waste that gift. In other words, you want to see more people come into God's favour. You want to see the word spread effectively. You don't want to keep it to yourself. You want to see effective gospel ministry taking place. Many of us, although possibly not all of us, given the age group, but many of us, I think, will be familiar with the, sadly, the tragedy of the Port Arthur Massacre. Anyone, who's, put up your hand if you've heard of the Port Arthur Massacre. Yeah, about half, okay. Uh, this guy, Martin Bryant, went on a random shooting spree. He killed 35 people in Port Arthur in uh, Tasmania. For no reason he killed them other than his, his, his insanity, his madness. In response, the then Howard government declared this thing called an amnesty, a national amnesty. It's a period whereby any person in possession of illegal firearms and weapons could hand them into the police and there'd be no charges, no questions asked. As a matter of fact, there was even this thing called a national buyback scheme where in some cases you would get paid for handing in your weapon and your firearm. Alarmingly, there were a lot more illegal weapons handed in than people or the Australian government expected. But thankfully, a lot were handed in. Because once the amnesty period is over, well then, of course, the penalty would be very firm and without leniency. And so it is currently with God. Jesus has died to pay the price for all sin, all your sin and all mine, past, present, future. And yet he's holding off on returning for that final judgment, such that the day of salvation is now, the time of God's favour is now, where anyone can turn in repentance and find forgiveness before it's too late. So for we who are saved... For we who have that grace of God, we don't want to receive that amazing grace in vain. We want to do all we can to see others find forgiveness during God's great amnesty. That's why Paul is telling these Corinthians what makes for a credible ministry rather than an ineffective one. That's why we know that he's going on about gospel ministry is not receiving the grace of God in vain. Uh, look at the very next verse, uh, verse 3. We, it's almost a therefore, given we don't want to receive the grace in vain, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Or another translation possibly could be, we wholly commend ourselves. And then, I've put dot, dot, dot there because I'm not going to rehearse it, but you, you all heard in the reader... He goes on with that massive list of all the things that make for credible gospel ministry, the hardships, the, the, the floggings, the anxieties, the, the sleepless nights, etc. Because all good and real gospel ministry is hard, is challenging. Why? Well, because we follow the suffering servant and we take up our cross. You know, when I was going through... Um, 
more uh, Bible college, more theological college many years ago. When I first went in, I had this thing in mind, I'm going to do something really demanding and hard. I'm going to go to Melbourne in the universities where they hate Christians and I'm going to be a full-on evangelist and that's going to be a real job. I'm not going to have this cushy job in some Sydney Anglican church where I'm like all comfortable and stuff like that. I quickly grew up out of such stupidity because all good gospel ministry is is challenging and is hard because we follow the suffering servant. The millionaire at the megachurch, the celebrity preacher who's always on about prosperity and stuff, they kind of look very distant from the suffering servant. And they often keep falling into all sorts of scandal and therefore discrediting the gospel. And when you consider 2 Corinthians on the whole, you actually come to realise that that is one of the big issues that Paul is sorting out in this letter. And it's an issue that provides some very important context for understanding the command to not be yoked together with unbelievers. You see, a little bit later on in this same letter... We'll learn that after Paul had established the church in Corinth and then moved on, that not surprisingly some false teachers then came along. Uh, Paul had warned them about that. Jesus had always warned about that, not to mention basically every writer of the New Testament. But of course, the false teacher always wears a convincing disguise. And in this case, it was the disguise of worldly wealth and success. And the Corinthians... Well, they got thoroughly sucked in by this worldly wealth and success. Listen to what Paul says about this from later on in this letter. Chapter 11, he writes to these Corinthians, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, Your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. I do not think I am in the least inferior to those super apostles, I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? You see, when you piece it all together, you work out that there are these false teachers called super apostles who fit in very nicely with the worldly cultural standards of their day. I think the Corinthians knew this, but for us, we sort of have to read the letter and go on and then sort of work it out to to, to sort of feel how they would have felt. Uh, In Greek culture, the esteemed philosophers would demand payment for their eloquent speeches, their orations. Uh, You know that if you ever read some Plato or Socrates, but I, I think they're not very popular reading these days. Anyone ever read any Plato or Socrates? Yeah, didn't it's a cool read, man. Check it out. Yeah, Harry Potter, Plato. Anyway, 
These guys were trained in what we might call the classics of their time. And when you Christianise that kind of thing, you get persuasive so-called gospel preachers who show themselves to be very credible on the basis of how highly they come recommended by others and how much they get paid by their hearers for their magnificent orations, their magnificent speeches. It's not that hard to imagine one of those people, one of those super apostles, hanging around with the Corinthian church and talking perhaps about the Apostle Paul. Paul, (laughs) that guy's an amateur. He doesn't even get paid for his teaching. Do you see what happened to him in Macedonia? How he got so rejected? It was so offensive that people booted him out of their cities. Look, I know he meant well, but you guys, you need to level up. You don't want a preacher with bruises and cuts on his face. You want the successful rich guy with the magazine face. He's obviously the one whose ministry is successful. He's obviously the one that's doing the good job. But of course, if that's the kind of messenger you are, then the message you present is, well, not likely to be the message of the one who did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but lowered himself to be the slave of all. Hence, Paul would fearlessly and earnestly declare that I will keep on doing what I am doing in order to cut the ground out from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light." It's not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. These super apostles who thrive on expressions of worldly power rather than heavenly weakness, these agents of Satan who pretend to be apostles but who look so unlike Jesus they can't possibly be known by him, they are leading the Corinthians astray with a different Jesus and a different gospel. And now that we see the big picture of what's actually happening in Corinth, what's going on here, as we come back to our passage, we start to understand why Paul was worried and why he's pleading with the Corinthians, basically, strange as it sounds, to be loyal to him, to be in deep fellowship with him. I'm going to read from chapter 6, verse 11 to 13, and then immediately keep on reading from chapter 7, verse 2. I'm going to skip the bit in the middle. And you'll see that it all actually flows together. It's one big thing he's saying, and so you're supposed to wonder what's in the middle. But let me read this bit first, right? From 6, verse 11, Paul writes, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and open wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children, open wide your hearts also. Make room in your hearts, uh, room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. 
You see, basically he's saying, embrace me and my offsiders as the bearers of the true apostolic gospel. And thankfully, we'll quickly learn from next week's passage that the Corinthians do indeed still embrace Paul. When Paul's co-worker Titus comes back from having a visit, he reports to Paul that these Corinthians do still have a longing for him. They have a deep sorrow at his previous rebuke, which we're going to learn about next week, and a great concern for his well-being. That's chapter 7, verse 7. But what's he saying in the middle? Why does he go like that? Why, why does he have this big diversion part in the middle? Well, the reason he diverts to that chunk of text in the middle is to make the point that if they're going to embrace him, if they're going to embrace the apostolic gospel, they can't have it both ways. They can't embrace the true apostolic gospel of the suffering Messiah through his chosen apostle Paul and also yet at the same time remain infatuated with the worldly prosperity preachers who proclaim a different Jesus. To put it another way, these Corinthians will need to stop being yoked with unbelievers. It's the age-old problem of tolerance that always plagues the church. You see, true true tolerance is very much a thing that originates with Christians, and it's wonderful. Uh, In Islam, you want to enforce a tax on the infidel. In Rwanda, if you're the Tutsi, you want to kill the Hutus, etc. But in God's kingdom, we pray for all people. And we pray that our secular government will enable us to live peaceful and quiet lives amidst our neighbours who come in all stripes and shades. But just as there is a limit, and a very important limit, to God's tolerance, the day of amnesty will run out, there is a limit to his tolerance. Well, so too there must be a limit to ours. And false teaching, and much worse, false teachers are not to be tolerated by the household of the true and living God. It's an uncomfortable truth for us, but the Bible makes it all the time. You see, it's not the false teaching that gets condemned on the day of Christ, on the last, uh, the final day of judgment. It is the false teacher who is condemned. Hence, we come to Paul's big teaching point from this section, verse 14, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Which, by the way, is just another nickname for the devil. Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will walk with them and live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate says the Lord touch no unclean thing and I will receive you and I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters says the Lord Almighty you know Paul's bringing out the big guns right when he just goes a barrage of Old Testament sort of scriptural quotes to make his point you see it's always been the case that if God graciously dwells among you and even now within you that it's terribly thankless and misguided and sinful to corrupt his saving presence by introducing false gods or in this context by introducing false teachers 
You see, our God is rightly a jealous God. And the reason Paul can refer to his own character and his own conduct as a testimony that he's actually on the side of the true gospel, he's on the side of truth, unlike these super apostles, is because it's always the case that the character of the messenger can't help but tell you something about the character of the message. We, we sort of, we agree with this intuitively, we see it all the time. The classic example that comes to my mind is when the surgeon walks out of the operating theatre, slumps the shoulders, heads to the ground, screws up the face. You already know what the message is, don't you? It's not going to be a good one. Similarly, when the Apostle Paul endures, well, what are all the things back there, the early chapter, the beatings, the hardships, the, the, the sleepless nights, etc. When he looks like a wreck and yet he somehow keeps on going, well, it's painfully obvious that the message he thoroughly believes and preaches is one whereby even such horrific things can be considered light and momentary troubles that are preparing him and us for eternal glory. You know that he's the one who is taking up his cross to follow the suffering servant who then entered his glory. He's not taking up his expensive suit to follow the influencer who would build his empire on earth. The kinds of things that we pay a little bit of homage to tonight with our expensive suits. Uh, on that, we will... Um, I was amusing before, we might have a... Um, proper prayer book service again. We haven't done it for a while. Oh, yeah, yeah. Maybe in a month from now or something, we, I'll send you all an email. You'll all know about it. We can dress up very prim and proper for church. <sighs> it's funny how things go round and round, isn't it? <laughs> Friends, the immediate application of the command to not be yoked together with unbelievers is actually to stop tolerating false teachers in the household of God. On the national front, I'm very sad to say that our denomination, denomination, Anglican, Anglican Church of Australia, probably isn't doing very well in this regard. Outside of the Sydney Diocese, the Armidale Diocese, to a lesser extent the Bathurst and the Canberra Goulburn Diocese, it's actually very hard to find Anglican churches led by Bible-believing clergy. Recently, at our National Synod, a motion was put forward that the Synod affirm that according to the Bible, marriage is something that happens between a man and a woman, between a male and a female. The majority of the laity voted in favour. The majority of the clergy, and it was something around 64%, so, you know, not the best majority, but the majority of clergy also voted in favour. But the majority of bishops would not affirm that according to the Bible, marriage is between a man and a woman. Now, thanks to God in our neck of the woods, and I really mean thanks to God, he's been very, very gracious in this regard. In our neck of the woods, we've got a solid theological college. More college is not a Bible college, it is a theological college. It's more than just a Bible college. It actually teaches its students to think biblically and teach the Scriptures. It's pretty hard also for an Anglican clergyman 
to become a celebrity preacher in our neck of the woods. It's even harder for them to make loads of money because we've got all these rules and regulations and I praise God for them that just say, thus far you shall go and no farther. But there are always serious threats. If you've been around here for a while, you've probably noticed that, for example, in our selection of congregational songs, that we're careful not to choose songs produced by organisations that both promote and propagate patently false teaching. Lest we end up advertising and funding false teachers at the very point where we're engaging in the ministry of the word as we sing together. But sadly, that is not the case for a great number of Anglican churches, even in Sydney. But in saying yes to Paul and the apostolic gospel, this Corinthian church had to ensure they wouldn't yoke themselves with the unbelieving super apostles. And that shouldn't take any of us by surprise because really all over the Bible, it is impressed upon us time and time again that you're not actually saying yes to the truth unless you're also saying no to the lie. It's always the harder bit to hear, but it's always what the scriptures tell us. You're not saying yes to the truth unless you are also saying no to the lie. But whilst that's the immediate, as I said, application, Paul being Paul, and frankly I sympathise with him because I feel like this too, Paul being Paul can't help but to immediately move to the broader application as well. In the next verse, 7-1 that is, given that God lives among his church, the obvious thing is not only to stop tolerating false teachers, but also to stop tolerating anything that arouses our holy God towards jealousy. So chapter 7 and verse 1 Therefore, since we have these promises, that is the promises that he will live with us and walk among us, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. It's basically in line with that Old Testament quote he gave us in verse 17, come out from them and be separate. But the them is now more than just the false teachers, it's anything that corrupts uh, the, the body and the, the spirit. Yeah, the basic idea is that whilst there are all sorts of things that you and I should enjoy and delight in and use and receive with thanksgiving, there's all sorts of things in the world that are absolutely wonderful that we Christians rightly receive with, with thanks. There must always yet be a discernible degree of distance between the Christian and the culture between the children of God and the children of the devil, between the redeemed and the reprobate, between the clean and the contaminated. The joy of knowing our Heavenly Father who is jealous for his children, that's a real joy and it's ours. And it's ours precisely because, frankly, the world has been crucified to us and we to the world, Galatians 6. So, for example, if you know, if you just know that the group of people you're going to go out with next week are likely to drink to excess 
And also, you know yourself that you happen to be someone who can very easily fall into the temptation to join in with them. Then why on earth are you even thinking about going? You'll feel dirty anyway for contaminating God's life-giving spirit that dwells within you and you'll contaminate it with the idolatry and the debauchery that always accompanies drunkenness. Again, if you know that that TV show or that movie that normalises and celebrates and glorifies sexual immorality, adultery and fornication, basically every second thing on Netflix, and you know that you can very easily get sucked into that narrative and it kind of makes you want to think along the same lines and think the same way, then why on earth are you even considering watching it? See, the broader application of not being yoked together with unbelievers can be summed up as you're not saying yes to Jesus unless you are also saying no to ungodliness. It's just a broadening of the first principle, really. And by the way, guys, it is in this vein that there is a certain rightness to invoking the do not be yoked with unbelievers as a reason not to date or to marry someone who's not a follower of Jesus. That is not the primary application, but it certainly is one of the broader applications from this part of the Word of God. You should feel irked at the thought of taking part of this temple of God and uniting it with something that dwells in the dominion of darkness. That should be like a, whoa, no, yuck, I don't want to do that. Uh, guys, if she's, if someone says, is she a Christian, you're keen on her, and it's like, oh, maybe she went to church once or twice, just run. Girls, same thing. Is he a Christian? Oh, his grandma took him to church when he was young. Oh, he's got a Bible that he's, he's had for since primary. Just, if the answer's anything short of, of course, duh, would you look at that guy? It's thoroughly, if it's anything less than that, just stop polluting the temple with idolatry. Just don't do it. Finally, remembering that Paul also taught that we're not to remove ourselves somehow from the world and to live in peace with our neighbours, we need to practice the art of holding some degree of distance with our fallen world, but without being aloof, without looking down our nose at people without the so-called holier-than-thou attitude. Of course, that's difficult because God does literally dwell within and amongst his saved people. In reality, you are actually holier-than-thou, which makes things kind of awkward. But of course, none of that's to our credit. It's all solely by the grace of God who gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Looking back to those last few verses, it's precisely because we have the wonderful promises of God that he will live among us and walk among us, that he will be a father to us and we're his children through undeserved adoptions, precisely because we have those sort of things that we're therefore motivated to unyoke ourselves with A, false teachers, and B, anything else that contaminates. You see, it's not a jump through these hoops from your big scary God who's looking down for you to see if you're good. It's not like that. It's because he has promised to dwell with you and among you that you therefore want to 
be separate from them. The great motivator to stop tolerating false teachers and to strive for godliness over worldliness is not that we need to win favour with our jealous Heavenly Father, but really it's by the compelling love he has given us through Christ. To sum up my very greedy third and final point of my somehow one main point, and this is actually probably, I think biblically it's the most important one, is that thankfully God has already said yes to us in Christ. See, the only first two only make sense when you get this last one. It is the love of Christ that compels us. So do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Why? Well, because it will hinder gospel ministry in this, the day of salvation, and even more so because God in his great kindness has called us out of the world and into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin, so it should irk us to want to be contaminated, A, with false teachers, B, with anything that actually corrupts body and mind. And it's as we continue sort of in that vein, in that process, that we constantly are being prepared for an eternal glory, which is why we can rejoice amid suffering just like the Apostle Paul and not so much like the super-apostles. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has called us out of the world and into his eternal kingdom. And then on account of his death, his resurrection, and his pouring of the Spirit, we can see your promises are true and fulfilled, that you do indeed live and walk among us. May that motivate us, Father, to reject false teachers and false teaching. May it further motivate us to joyfully set aside the kinds of things that connect us with a fallen, crooked and depraved generation and instead persevere even amidst suffering during this wonderful day of salvation and favour in serving the Lord in loving one another. And we ask for your help in doing these things in Jesus' name. Amen.